You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk with diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Victor Kumar. Victor is an assistant professor of philosophy at Boston University and director of the Mind and Morality Lab. His research interests are in evolutionary theory, philosophy of mind, feminist philosophy, and philosophy of race. He is currently writing a book with Richard Campbell on the evolutionary foundation of morality. In this episode, we talk about moral evolution, moral progress, us and apes, TikTok, and so much more. Hello, Victor, and welcome to the Amit Podcast. How are you today? I'm good, Maisha. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How did you get interested in philosophy? I feel like I must ask you not only you know, how did you get interested in philosophy, but also how did you get interested in philosophy and neuroscience? And I can keep going. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I think one answer will answer all of those questions. So okay. um, I was a science major in in college, and I didn't take a philosophy class until almost the end of my science degree. So I was double majoring in biology and psychology. And I thought I was going to go to grad school in psychology or ecology and evolutionary biology. And then I took a philosophy class. Finally, it didn't take one until I think my fourth year. And it was philosophy of biology. And I was mm. just blown away because they were asking these big picture theoretical questions that like came to mind when I was taking biology classes, but my biology classes, you know, my biology professors never were never interested in thinking about those questions. So um, I kind of got into philosophy through science and, and I retained my interest in, in sciences. And I was really interested in a lot, of, a lot of things initially, but ultimately narrowed in on parts of philosophy that are connected with cognitive science and evolutionary theory. Do you have any regrets? I mean, it'll be messed up if you said yes, right? <laughs> you are in the in the profession, but 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 my assumption is that you get to have the best of both worlds through this discovery. No. And is that correct to assume? That's exactly right. I don't have any regrets. I mean, the stuff in science that I was always interested in was, you know, high-level abstract theoretical stuff, and I think that actually philosophy is a better place to think about those questions than science or at least as good of a place. So I really, I feel like my life is charmed. I feel so lucky that I found a field that I love and, you know, and can't wait to spend the rest of my life doing it. So I'm looking forward to this conversation because this is going to be a blending of, of philosophy with evolutionary biology or evolutionary psychology. So, so I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to it. So you're currently working on a book. Mm-hmm. It's about more progress. Now, I'm just going to briefly summarize it of sorts, and I could be totally in- incorrect, uh, but it's about, it's about a more progress. It's about uh, evolution. So let, let's first start off talking about evolutionary theories to, to how or, or why humans became moral. What's, what's, what's the story with that? Yeah. So there are a lot of different stories about that, about how humans became moral. I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is that like other animals are moral or have capacities that are like morality as well. You think about, for example, our closest living relatives, chimpanzees, like chimpanzees live in these tight knit social groups where they have, you know, feelings of like sympathy and loyalty to one another. They, um, 
They express things that look like gratitude. They have fights, but then they make up afterwards. And so I think you see um, some things that that chimpanzees and humans share in common there. But I think like the question about how humans became moral is like how did we evolve the what seem to be more complex moral capacities that other animals don't have? And like I said, you know, there's a lot of stories about this question. One of the things that we try to do in the book, my my co-author Richmond Campbell and I, is we try to integrate these different psycho, uh, scientific theories about how morality evolved and put them together into one big picture. So, I mean, I think the thing that all of these stories have in common is that morality evolved for the sake of cooperation. Humans have to cooperate in more complex ways than other animals, and we needed souped up moral capacities, more like a wider range of emotions, like shame and trust. And we also had to have the ability to follow rules and hold other people responsible for following the rules. So, you know, there's all kinds of all kinds of types of cooperation that were relevant, like um, hunting and scavenging, but also cooperative parenting, uh, having coalitions who could oppose alphas who were trying to dominate everybody else. Mm. Um, but also things like intellectual cooperation. Like we, you know, one of the things about humans is that we grew these huge brains and had these long developmental periods where we could learn a lot from our environment and share it with each other. And to gain knowledge and share it with each other, we had to have moral communities, moral communities where we could trust each other and respect each other so that we could learn from each other. I like how you you, you define at least our, our capacity for morality in the sense of rules, and then you also m- mention emotions. And I think for, for lots of people, it's either one or the other, right? Mm-hmm. So there's people who are like, oh, we have a, you know, particularly ethical theories, we have this thing where we have to follow the rules, and that's we should just follow, follow the rules. But it's interesting that you bring those two up. And I wonder, I wonder how valuable you consider them to be for us. And I just wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Emotions, that is, and, and rules, and, and how they work in tandem with each other for us. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, you're totally right that in the philosophical tradition, people tend to emphasize one and de-emphasize the other. But I think both of them are incredibly important. You know, emotions kind of permeate so much of our thinking and behavior. You can't, um, you can't form real, it's very difficult to form uh, relationships of all kinds with people without feeling emotions. But I think rules are important because, you know, we need to have explicit standards that we hold ourselves to, that we expect others to follow and that we hold other people responsible for following too. So like rules can be more precise in a way that emotions can't be. Um, And so shared rules can enable a kind of more uh, precise, reliable cooperation that emotions don't provide. But, you know, I think emotions are essential too, because, um, you know, having, being able to understand what another person is thinking and feeling and responding emotionally to that, that's just critical to any kind of social interaction. I've been using the word more, more progress um, with my own assumptions about what I take it to mean. And, and I wonder how you would define moral progress. How would you define moral evolution if there's a such thing? And, and do you think these things are the same? I think, you know, moral evolution is, is much easier to define. So I, I think moral evolution just means when morality changes. And so it means when our moral when our capacities for feeling moral emotions, our rules, when they change in the context of allied social structures, social institutions like family and politics, which are all tied up with morality. So 
I don't think moral progress is the same thing as moral evolution because moral evolution can happen in a negative, regressive direction, right? Mm-hmm. Or moral evolution, you know, our moralities can change, but it's not positive or negative. It's not progressive or regressive. It can just be neutral change. Progress, moral progress, you know, that's really, really hard to define. I think that's one of the most difficult philosophical questions, trying to define what moral progress is. And in fact, I think it's so hard that in a lot of my work, I don't try to answer that question. What I try to do instead is try to look at what I think of are as relatively uncontroversial examples of moral progress. I think it's much easier to know that some social change was progressive than to know what the definition of moral progress is. Like it's, it's, it's easier to go bottom up rather than top down. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So for example, I mean, like what, just one example of this in our lifetimes is the dramatic change that has undergone um, gay and lesbian people, at least in North America, but many other countries too. You know, um, there's much wider acceptance. People who are gay or lesbian have much better life prospects than they did 50 years ago. Much less likely to be rejected from their families, or you know, excluded from their religious communities, or fired from their jobs. That's a that's a good example of moral progress. And I think you don't need to know what the abstract definition of moral progress is to know that this is a case of it. You know, it's sort of like, you know it when you see it. Is that, is that so? So, so, so what, one of the things I'm thinking about, I'm glad you mentioned that example, because one of the things that I've, I hear, a question that I constantly hear is as, as, as African-American, a question that's usually thrown in my direction is, have it, you know, ha- have we made pro- progress <laughs> along racial lines? Mm. Um, and to answer that question, I really need to know exactly what, <laughs> what more progress is. Uh-huh. At least, at least implicitly, right? That I have, a, I have an understanding of what what moral progress is, so much so that I can answer the question if it has occurred or not. So, so are you saying that we don't need to know what it is to to know if we see it, or there mm-hmm. is something about at least there is something about some kind of knowledge about what we think it is to make it the case that we can answer questions like that? Yeah, no, this is a good this is a good point, and it's a good distinction you're drawing between the way I see it is more cases that are more uncontroversial with versus harder cases. Like, okay. so I think, for example, you know, I think there's a good case to be made that anti-black racism has declined in the U S between, you know, the 1800s to the 20th or 21st century, but I, I, that's contestable. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not quite as obvious a truth. I mean, and the reason for that, I think is that uh, with the end of chattel slavery in the U S what you had is its replacement by other forms of oppressive social control, you know. So chattel slavery ends, but it's replaced by other systems, including uh, Jim Crow and segregation. And okay, the civil rights movement really su- seems to succeed in the in the 1960s, but what you have then replacing it is mass incarceration, mass incarceration, you know, primarily of Black, Indigenous, and Latino people. And so I think it's it's it, you know it's it's easy to make quick judgments. And I do find them tempting. I think, well, mass incarceration is a horrible problem. And it means that racial injustice is still deep and present in our society. But I, but it does, I think it might seem to many people, including myself, that it's better, better than chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's still the case. I think you're right that this is, that this is a, a hard problem. You want to know, well, sometimes progress happens in some dimensions but regress in others. Like, for example, you know, maybe things 
maybe there has been better life prospects for people of color in the U.S., but but maybe the type of inequality that's there is more deeply entrenched and harder to overturn. You know, so there's like there can be improvements in some respects and decline in other respects, and it's really really hard to try to put them next to each other and evaluate, you know, how to, whether it's progress or regress on balance or just neutral on balance. And, and so I do think you're right that a, a, a general definition of progress can help there. I suppose I have, I, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical that, you know, we can ever get that general definition mm-hmm. in part because mm-hmm. I think that morality is inherently pluralistic. You know, morality isn't just about one thing. It's about well-being and freedom and equality and once you have a really tough case like maybe this is one of them um, you've got improvements in some on some measures and and decline on others and, and and if morality is really fundamentally pluralistic it's hard to it's hard to compare and contrast and figure out what the sum is I want to talk a little bit more about the story of, of moral evolution. It makes me want to go back to the chimp example. And I want to compare that to our ancestors of 200 years ago. So so you you noted that what kind of separates us from our, our, our most common ancestor chimps is you talked about rules, the establishment of rules, and also yeah. an expansion of, of, of emotions. So that's the story in that regard, perhaps in our brains, right? So that's the story for, for chimps. How do we make sense of the progression or the evolution of morality, if we want to call it that, from those who did live during slavery or those who did live mm. during the 18th, the 17th, and the 16th century. Uh, how do we make sense of that? So I think, you know, one of the questions here is, has there been progress in the last, say, 200 years? Certainly the moral evolution, our morality has changed. Our morality has definitely changed between now and then, you know. And I think just like so much of culture, culture has just been has been changing more more and more quickly over the last few centuries and that's true of morality is changing changing quickly whether there's been progress i mean i think that you know there, i think when you talk about moral progress there's a there's a temptation to think about overall moral progress like mm-hmm. are we better than our ancestors were or that the people that lived 200 years ago in the same place or you know my ancestors i don't i don't think I think it's hard to know that the answer to that question, like overall, I mean, in some ways, I think that people today are, uh, you know, there's, there's more gender equality than, than there was 200 years ago. On the other hand, I think people, at least in some communities, people are a lot worse at taking care of the most vulnerable people within their local communities. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think there's greater wealth and prosperity on average today compared to 200 years ago, but there's much more inequality. There's, uh, you know, there, there's so much more wealth, but it's been hoarded by people who are at the top of the social hierarchy. So I think when you ask about progress, it's hard to make any overall judgment like, oh, there's been overall mor- moral progress. Overall moralities today are better than moralities 200 years ago. I don't think you can say that, but I think you could that you can isolate local dimensions of moral progress. So for example, you know, one of the examples I just gave had to do with gender equality. I think there's a pretty strong case to be made um, that there's been gender egalitarian progress over the last 200 years, that there's greater equality between men and women, that women can participate in more spheres 
of private and public life than they used to be able to do during that period. So once you get local, once you get specific about a certain area of life, area of society, then I think you can make these judgments about there's been some progress in some areas, but regress in other areas. Do you also feel more comfortable saying that our morality or our norms or our values have have changed as opposed to we have? Yeah. I mean, sometimes what happens is our values don't change, but we better live up to them. Mm. Um, but I, I think, so I'm not sure what you had in mind, but I, I think that both of those things are true. I mean, if we're looking at the period of 100 or 200 years in North American society, that people's values have changed, people's emotions, rules, norms have changed, and people themselves have changed as well. I mean, I think that our, you know, we've been talking about emotions and rules already, but another important concept in moral psychology is traits and character. And I think um, people's, people's characters have changed as well. But that's, you know, I think that that's not the only thing that has changed. And so it's important to recognize too, that, you know, a lot of so important social change isn't just in our hearts and minds, it's in the world around us, social structure, but in particular, social institutions. And I'm thinking not just of our political institutions, but like family institutions, religious institutions, the norms and practices in those institutions have changed for the better. And, and part of moral progress is is that kind of institutional change as well. You mentioned regression a, a while ago, and, and, and I, I want to know what you think about moral regression. How does moral regression happen if there's such a thing? Um, yeah. And can it occur? I think you alluded to this a little bit. Can it occur at the same time as, as what we're calling moral progress? Absolutely. I, absolutely. I think that it can occur at the same time. I mean, I think, you know, a, a good example of this relates to equality. There's been greater gender equality over the last 100 or 200 years, but I think increasing socioeconomic equality, especially over the last um, century or so. So there, there can be, progress can happen at the same time as regress. The other thing that you're asking about is how regress happens. And, you know, because I think that it makes more sense to look at local types of progress rather than global progress, progress as a whole. I think that how regress happens is really going to depend on the particular type of social change that you're thinking of. Okay. But I think that, you know, for a lot of different types of social change, the answer to that question about how regress occurs, to put it glibly, is capitalism. Mm. It's that... Um, what you know, I think free markets are good in lots of ways. They allow us to coordinate our behavior and they lead to the accumulation of wealth. But another thing they do is they allow wealthy people, uh, you know, primarily white men, to hoard wealth and power. And they create a, a social system that doesn't provide any checks to protect the people that are most vulnerable and most susceptible to marginalization. So for example, I think one important case of moral regress that we haven't discussed yet has to do with the plight of non-human animals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you might think that's a case of moral progress because you now more and more people in North America seem to be becoming vegetarian or vegan. I've become vegetarian myself under the influence of my uh, virtuous partner. Congrats. Did I just virtue signal by saying that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the club. Did I just virtue signal by saying that? No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But, but I think that the treatment of non-human animals is actually, it's, it's a clear case of moral regress, even though there are more vegetarians and more vegans. And it's because of the market-driven changes to 
systems for producing um, animal food products. You know, it's uh, incentives for selling the cheapest burger is what has, you know, in short, has what le- is what led to the construction of industrial farming, which um, tortures and kills tens of millions of animals, hundreds of millions of animals in, in the U.S. alone each year. So I think that uh, it's not it's not just uh, you know the the market unencumbered as well. It's all the ways in which powerful people have co-opted government to feed the system, to provide subsidies to farmers in ways that lead to that encourage the exploitation of animals. So what capitalism does it produces a system that benefits people at the top, but exploits and in this case you know in the case of non-human animals tortures and kills hundreds of millions of animals a year. So I think that capitalism, and in particular, the way in which an economic system that is controlled by the elites and serves the elites and doesn't, uh, isn't um, influenced significantly by the interests of vulnerable people and animals, that's really one of the most important causes of moral regress. So we're recording this podcast last day of April 2021, slowly but surely coming out of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I don't know about you, but I have a very different view of human beings now uh, during the coronavirus pandemic than I had entering in. Call me naive if you want. And and I wonder how you feel about, about this. So, so how has human behavior in response to the coronavirus pandemic affected your thinking I mean, on this issue of moral evolution and progress, since you're writing the book. And, and I just I just wonder, have some claims, some, some premises, some thoughts that you had going into this? Has it changed as a result of, of some of the things that we've that we've witnessed? You know, I think for a lot, of, the pandemic has changed people's thinking on a wide range of topics, no matter what people work in. And it, it's also right. influenced me as well. So I think the most basic way is that it's reinforced in me the idea that you know, whenever we have a natural disaster, or as in this case, a human-made disaster, it's the people who are most vulnerable that are going to suffer the most. And people who are wealthy and have a lot of resources can, can in large degree, protect themselves from the disaster and don't really have to face the worst of it. And by the way, I would include myself in that category. I'm, you know, I'm not part of the American 1%, but I'm part of the global 1%. And I have a very cushy job as a professor who uh, my, you know, my livelihood was not threatened in the way that um, so many other people's were. So I think in some ways, you know, the, the pandemic has, has informed my thinking in similar ways that climate change has. So again, like with climate change, it's the people who are most vulnerable, um, especially in future generations that are going to suffer the worst. Uh, wealthy people will, to a, at least for a while, will be able to protect themselves from the worst harms of climate change. But I think the other, the other big thing, the other big way in which the pandemic, along with climate change, has informed my thinking is in thinking about how important scientific progress is to moral progress. Mm. You know, I think it's not scientific advances if they can if the fruits of them can be shared equitably can enhance human well-being but the other thing is that uh you know people have to trust scientific opinion if we're going to truly benefit from from science and i think you see this both in the pandemic and with regard to climate change that 
science, there's, you know, wide scientific consensus on these issues that is not shared by the general public. Um, virtually every climate scientist thinks that climate change is um, caused by human activity and will lead to devastating consequences. But, you know, the American public is split on that. Virtually all public health experts think that wearing a mask and social distancing is important to saving lives, but also uh, getting the economy going again. But again, you know, you have this divergence of opinion among the public. I think that one of one of the impediments here, it's not just ignorance. It's and it has to do with the way in which scientific experts and uh, people who are prominent in media and academia are perceived by many people to be members of a socioeconomic elite that don't actually care so much about the interests of people who are working class. And I think this opinion that, you know, the elites don't care about us, I think that's right. I think it's just true that the elites don't care. And it makes sense that you shouldn't trust these scientific opinions, if they're coming from people who don't seem to give a shit about you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that actually one of the things that's driving distrust of scientific opinion is inequality. I think socioeconomic equality is one of the big, uh, big factors here. And it's a way in which, you know, moral progress is important to scientific progress. So like earlier, I was saying, you know, we need scientific progress to make moral progress to meet the challenges of the pandemic, of climate change. But I also think we need moral progress to achieve scientific progress. We need greater equality in order to create a society where people who are scientific or academic elites can be trusted with it, the knowledge that they genuinely have. So the name of the book is called A Better Ape. What are your hopes as well as some strategies to ensure that we become a better ape in the present future? Yeah. It's a hard question. I mean, so this is this is making me think about a lot of things. But one of the things that's making me think of is moral philosophy. I think that there's a, a trend in, you know, there's a long history in moral philosophy of trying to think about utopias, about trying to think about what the ideally just state looks like. And I'm really skeptical of that view. I, I don't I don't I have no idea what a utopia looks like and I'm kinda I kind of <laughs> right. give give a side eye to anyone who thinks they do know what it looks like. I think the best thing that we can do, and this is in the tradition of people like Charles Mills, uh, Elizabeth Anderson, Amartya Sen, is to do non-ideal theory, which is to think about how social progress has been made in the past as a clue to how it can be made in the future. So I think if you want to think about how, strategies for becoming a better ape, we got to think about how, at least in some dimensions, we've become We've improved in the past. I think one of the most important things is what we call in the book democratic integration. Uh, democratic integration is the idea that our institutions should not be controlled exclusively by white men, that people from marginalized groups have to occupy more decision-making roles in social institutions. And, and so I don't just mean the government, but I mean things like family institutions, um, religious institutions, economic institutions. I think that if there's more democratic democratic integration, if, if people from diverse social categories can play a role in um, making decisions within our social institutions and shaping the way that society unfolds, that that is really the best way for 
uh, making better institutions, but also making us better, making right. us better within those institutions. You are interested in science, ethics, evolutionary theory, cognitive science, as I mentioned at the start of this conversation, mm. but you're also interested in people may have detected this feminism, philosophy of race and social justice. So many may not expect the latter given the <laughs> former interests. So uh -huh. how does all this work for you, Victor? Yeah. Well, the short answer is I'm still trying to figure it out. I don't know, <laughs> um, but I'm interested in all those things. I'm interested in ethics and science and evolution, and I'm interested in feminism and social justice and um, anti-racism. And, you know, my hope is to understand better how these things connect in the future. But the main way that I, that I do think they connect is that I think, you know, I, I think to paraphrase um, Stephen Colbert, I think that reality has a progressive bias. That is, if we can better understand the world in which we live, and the people that we live in the world with, that we can, that we'll be persuaded to have better moral views, to design better social institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I think science is really important to social justice because science can tell us what we're like, um, what our minds are like, what our culture is like, how our minds and culture interact. And it can tell us how to advance social change, how to address social justice, help us better understand what obstacles lie in the way of achieving social justice. That's, that's I think, the main way in which those two fields intersect. I think the last time that I saw you, you had yet to be a father. Mm. Um, but you're now a parent, a new parent. And how has that impacted you? Profoundly. You know, I, I think it's hard to, Lori Paul has written on this, and I'm, I'm finding myself more persuaded by her after becoming a parent, that it's really hard to imagine what it is to be a parent and how it'll transform you. It's, you know, you hear this from people, but you don't know until you experience it, that you create a being that you are absolutely head over heels in love with. and that you will. I can tell, so I can tell, Victor, you know how I can tell? <laughs> uh, yeah. Your Instagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, I don't know, you know, it, it it's changed my life and that it's I you know, I've fallen in love with this being, this this child Mira who is now almost a year and a half and it's incredibly enriching. It's, you know, she's the most important thing in my life now. But I also think, you know, this is something that I don't think too many people talk about, which is that I think that having a child is morally dangerous in some ways because it concentrates your empathy. You know, I feel so much for my child. I think that sometimes leaves me with an empathy deficit, feeling less for other people because I'm just so obsessed with my baby. So that's another thing that I didn't anticipate beforehand, that um, that having a baby would concentrate my empathy and, and at least at times make me, give me less moral consideration for other people unless I notice it and correct myself. Right, right. So speaking of your Instagram, so your Instagram stories hmm. have brought me so much joy <laughs> in the last few months. So I, 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 I wonder, and I'm putting you on blast here, what TikTokers, what, what Instagrammers would you recommend uh, to us if we want to get more laughs out of life? I'm very proud for you that you said that. I mean, it's nice <laughs> if you compliment my work, but that you compliment my Instagram stories is really <laughs> another level. 
but yeah, I've been, I've been really, you know, I think, uh, I think this happened maybe when my, my baby Mira was like napping on my chest and I started looking at, at TikTok. Um, but I discovered TikTok, which is this amazing app that, you know, brings, it's like a fire hose of content that you can stick in your face and lots of incredible, incredible people and store and things that you find on TikTok. And so what I, I, you know, as you pointed out, what I've been doing recently is posting some TikToks in my Instagram stories. Yeah. So, so one thing that you should do is you should get on Instagram and follow Zara Rahim and Aminata. So um, they also post stories that are, that are TikToks. So that, that's another way to get, get more TikToks in your, in your life. The, the really cool thing about TikTok is the algorithm. It's got this really fantastic and scary algorithm that figures out what you like just based mm-hmm. on which TikToks you watch all the way through and which ones you skip. And so it learns really quickly which things you'll watch. And so like the best way to find things that you like on TikTok is just start watching videos and making choices, you know, watch some videos and skip others and um, the algorithm will will know more about you than you do. Victor, thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you. It's awesome to talk to you, Alicia. Thanks. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.